Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Udang Damang Sangang Namasami So today's the observance day, and uh, Michael has made a commitment to Anagarika training, taking the eight precepts and also committing to a particular form. So, kind of making resolution. So the, the two kinds of uh, resolutions, and one is the one we can or make a resolution towards particular uh, precepts. So it's always good to make these resolutions. Uh, Of course, it's important to actually keep the precepts. But there's another effect that occurs just through deliberately resolving it. It has a kind of shapes up your mind. It kind of clarifies and it gives your mind a particular firmness. You've decided that. So it can very well be the case that we're not going around killing or stealing or lying or drinking, but you know, which is great. But then the real benefit, or one of the great benefits of it, is just actually holding that clearly in your mind. This is something you decided not to do, or you're not going to do that, and it gives your mind a certain um, um, gravity, a certain firmness. Certainly, it sort of uh, gives it a centre ethical centre, you set your moral compass, you might say. And uh, just meaning that you realise you do have a, you know, a moral compass and that, that sits in the centre of the mind. Rather than, say, the, uh, the movement around feeling, which would otherwise normally occupy as the centre. And where generally the mind is generally moved by feelings and perceptions. Perceptions are these impressions we have. Things are friendly, comfortable, tasty, or the opposite. So they give rise to to pleasant or unpleasant feelings. And they, they move us a lot. They push us around a lot. Everything you can see generally in the world is advertised by the feeling tone that it evokes. It's a packaged holiday, a new car, packet of beans, it's got some kind of perception that triggers off a sense of this is pleasurable, interesting, wonderful, relaxing, comfortable, whatever, you know. And so you've got the feeling, and that's what pushes the mind. mind is always pushed or pulled by feeling. And generally the way, the way it is is that obviously things trigger off that in us, and also in the human world we're continually being um, feeling tones being waved in front of us, you know, sense of something like, you know, this season's colour is, is yellow or green or something in fashion, so everybody gets excited about that. Or f- sport, you know, somebody's won something or lost something, you got a group of ten guys of, of one country of kicked a ball around better than a group of guys from 
another country. I mean, that's a very positive feeling one can get from that. <laughs> you know, and they become my team. So why they're my team? Well, <laughs> you can identify with this feeling. And the feeling is powerful. It centers us. It gives a sense of, uh, we feel uplifted by that particular feeling. Gladdened by it. For as long as it lasts. Of course, next week, your same team that won this week gets, gets hammered next week, so then the feeling goes down. You know, so it just does that, and it up and down, up and down. You know, so, but we, so whether the feeling is, is good or bad, that's, that's one thing. But the fact that we are, we are so motivated around feeling, and you think, well, of course, well, what else is there to be motivated around? Well, it's motivating around intention, which is what taking precepts is about. So it's quite a big step. Obviously, the fact of, of determining, you know, of, of living in a good way has a powerful effect in terms of karma. You know, there's all sorts of things you avoid through keeping precepts. But the act of resolving it, of making a deliberate intention, also has a powerful effect. It means this is a, becomes a central focus. So you, you're kind of, you know, precepts are never happy precepts or <laughs> colourful precepts or <laughs> exciting precepts. <laughs> They're pretty much the same as they've always been, which is mostly boring. <laughs> so on the feeling tone, they just, well, that but uh, in terms of the intention, yeah, you know, they put that intention there, and it has a sort of a sense of uh, it. It suddenly the mind shifts from being, you know, centered around the feeling to being centered around ethical intention, and that's quite a big, major shift. And of course, it's a very uh, praiseworthy one because then, you know. You, you want to be with people who are, who are motivated by ethics or do you want to be with people who are motivated by, by pleasure and pain? <laughs> you know? Because, <laughs> because it's important, isn't it? Whether you actually feel pleased by somebody or displeased by somebody, the most important thing is you're not going to kill them. Because <laughs> we can't always be pleasant, you know, pleasant impressions to each other. I mean, sometimes just you don't want to be with anybody, or people irritate you, or, or you know, or whatever. But then, you know, behaviors can disappoint us, sadness, or whatever. But then, you know, the most important thing is you're motivated by ethics. So it really does change your your worldview. There's a very ongoing effect of that how your life is, has, is gearing itself, how it's steering itself. This is something we can all do. But it does, it also, it, uh, the other aspect of it is when you do that consciously and also in, in a public way, it, it magnifies it. It's almost like the group sense of it magnifies that intention. Hmm. You know, if you sit in your room and think to yourself, right, I'm not going to do that, and refrain from 
stealing or lying, that's powerful. But if you say it out loud to 50 people who sit and listen carefully, that has a much more powerful effect. Because the way the mind is, it's a resonator. And it, uh, you know, the, the more minds are present, the stronger the resonance is, the stronger the impression is. So sort of an accumulative effect. You really know you've said something. You know you've determined something. So often it's the case, you know, you see this in scriptures or in daily life, say, please be my witness, I've decided this. And it makes it much stronger, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. This is why we, you know, Sangha, monastic Sangha, you have the same principle. We all, you know, today we all determined or the Patimoka training discipline together. So you always do it together. Why don't you just sit on your room and do it on your own? <laughs> you know, it's the same old, same training rules. Whether you do it on your own in private or we do it in public together. But together it's a much stronger impression. You realise this is what we all have in common. This is our this is who we are. And the other perceptions we can have of ourselves or others, suddenly, you know, that that recedes. That recedes. This is this is what we're lining ourselves up with. So that we all line ourselves up in that way, we, we support each other. We get a sense of strengthening in that. That's the way it holds together. Because there isn't somebody going around snooping and checking and making sure everybody's keeping them. It's up to all each of us, but it's a feeling that you just wouldn't feel right if you weren't keeping them when you actually sat in a group of people and said you are. This is the way the mind is. It's wonderful. So the because feeling is so uh, such a powerful agent in our lives, it's something we have to contemplate and handle, manage, come to terms with, and notice how it occurs and what its effects are. And you get particular feeling comes from sense contact, touching, tasting, seeing, thinking, pleasant ideas, sounds. That's one input of feeling. The other input of feeling, which is is more important, is the um, feeling that arises from association with intentions. with mind states. So this is called, uh, first level is called Pomoja, which is gladness, inspiration, gladness. So, um, you know, when you, you, so when we have this Anamodana every day, it's a sense of acknowledging people's good and generous intention. So there's a sense of, you feel gladdened by that. It's a pleasant feeling associated with acknowledging good intention. So when we also, today when we gave the precepts to um, Michael, and then we did the little chant afterwards as a celebration. Because at that moment, 
you recognize a person has you know, st- stepped out, placed themselves right in the middle of us and just made these declarations and there's a feeling of, well, good for you, you know. You see at that moment there's an intention. An intention is carried out to really commit, to be public, to be seen in that way, to be said, you know, this is what I'm going to do, everybody be my witness. And you think, well, that's courageous, you know, that's courageous and that's clear and it's also, you know, vulnerable because we've all seen it <laughs> do it. <laughs> Can't say, well, hey, look what you said, you know. <laughs> so there's a feeling of, well, good for you. You get that, that uh, and the Mordana. And I think that's something you can all relate to when you, you see someone is courageous or honest or, you know, compassionate. You feel this sense of gladness. The mind is like that. It resonates. It's empathetic. It picks up things on that level. And so this is actually something to... to to focus on because we all recognize our feeling comes from touching, tasting, seeing, and so forth. We don't also to remember that the, the really powerful and helpful kind of feeling comes from, from inspiration, from <clears throat> and resonating with the goodness of others and the goodness of yourself. Something to do frequently is to keep remembering that. I just remember that uh, when someone takes precepts or makes those commitments, it reminds me so much of uh, when I was in Bodhagaya. And uh, after I've been six weeks walking in India. This is mostly unpleasant feeling. Sense contact, almost 100%, maybe, maybe 98% unpleasant. Maybe 95, you know, but basically unpleasant feeling, sense contact. So you're not, not really in a great state. Uh, and then you know, coming to walk along a road, you know, heat, dirt, hunger, sweat, tiredness, all that sort of stuff. And you come into Bodhagaya and think, well, another grubby little village with more of the same, you know. <laughs> That's what it seems like, you know, on our sensory level, because that's what it is. But then I go into the the Bodhi Temple, and um, which is where the you know they commemorate, or the, the Buddha apparently, or is reputed to have had his great realizations at this particular place, and then go there, and, and then it's coming in, and suddenly the thing touches you. And then there's lots of people chanting or moving around or sitting in silence and this tremendous sense of gladness arises. And you see the place where the Buddha sat, the tree, or at least the, the, this kind of just a bare stone slab where he's supposed to have sat, whether he did or not, who knows, but just that perception, Buddha, you know, realize complete truth. It's that perception, you get the quality of that, you know, the intention that must have been there to just sit there resolute to, re- to you know, realize complete freedom. Wow, you know, and then 
just considering over you know 2,500 years all these people have followed that or tried to follow it and it's a place where people have been coming on pilgrimage for centuries to commemorate that so all that gathered around that particular place so suddenly out of this rather dingy feeling tone you get a very bright strong feeling tone you know coming from empathy from resonance from sympathy with all this powerful intentionality and determination you know so just to notice that, you know, we can, though we are so often moved by feeling, just transferring that by the feeling that comes from powerful, clear intentions, intentions that you really can hold up and be public about and feel this is, this is worthwhile. You know, what does that do? So you start to move you know your 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 center around that still the feeling there but it's also feeling conjoined with strong intention so the buddha said you should always seek this out and in in uh, dhamma practice because so often we are dealing with uh, all the resultant karma, confusions of our minds, uncertainties, wavering errors and, and uh, wavering energies of mind and thoughts and memories. Just to have something you can go back to and be galvanized, be kind of centered around your intention. Mm. So it's an important point to, to recognize, to remember. Whether you achieve enlightenment or not, you know, that's another thing, but just to be able to have that intention to live morally. So I think this is not that distant, is it? You know, we can feel sick, tired, fed up, low energy, Oh, I feel really bad, I'm a mess, I can't meditate. You just come back to, are you the kind of person who likes to you know, rip rabbits apart? No. <laughs> are you the kind of person who likes to down a bottle of scotch? No. Oh, that's good then, isn't it? You, know, so you come, come back to that. And, yeah. These are not fantasies, these are truths. So he, you know, gives you that. It's a, re- it's a, it's a resource being able to recon- re- recollect that. You know, it's only, it becomes even more uh, powerful with the when it turns into something called rapture, uplift, piti. This is to do with. Um, Two, two factors. One is that your mind is temporarily or for a period of time, could be a minute, could be moments, could be a while, free from the pressure of sense desire, the pressure of ill will, the pressure of restlessness, the pressure of 
doubt, the pressure of lethargy. Worry, doubt, lethargy, dullness, you know, am I really good, speculative, negative, doubting, craving for something. So whenever your mind is free from that and you feel those, those particular energies are not present, then it's a, it's a sense of clarity. It's like the pressure is off. You're coming out of the cyclone. So these are not just um, topics. There's also they carry particular energies. You can feel what the energy of doubt is about, isn't it? It's kind of spinning around. Restlessness is jumping up and down. Sense desire is dragging you one way. Ill will is kind of pushing and bristling. You can you can feel that there's energies. Dullness, like heavy. So these all create um, energetic pressures. They're, they're afflictive energies. They're not just moral forces. But it's where you begin to really recognize that what we might call ethical or moral or temperamental uh, mental qualities or psychological qualities have a palpable, almost physical effect. And it's not physical, it's, it's energetic. There's an energy there. And this is very uh, helpful just to notice that. These are not just, you know, psychology has an energy to it. Because this is exactly why there's such a thing as inspiration that can really lift you up. Because there's energy lifts up. So pity is when that energy of the mind has become, has moved out of the grip of these particular forces. So it's, it's lifted. It's kind of like a boat that's, that's lifting in the water. It's not stuck in the mud anymore. And that uh, has an a, a effect on the body as well. As the body starts to feel lighter. It, it, it transfers. The energy crosses the boundary between what we normally conceive of as mind or psychology and physiology. The energy straddles those two categories, you could say, to the point where the more you, you develop that, those two categories, body and mind, no longer are two. They become one. And you get a quality called unit, unification, or samadhi comes when the body energy and the mind energy are, have come together. And piti is one of the um, heralds of that. It's the beginning of that. The important point about this is that with, with that, then you, you're, you've really shifted from being affected by sense contact and even affected by you know, internal sense contact as thoughts and memories and things we can feel, the images we can have in our mind that make us feel excited and happy. Just the sense of just the, the feeling is triggered by non, <laughs> non-attachment or non-involvement rather than being involved in something that's interesting or happy or exciting or, you know, arousing. It's just the non-involvement gives rise to this um, lighter, more uplifted feeling. 
So that's that's really quite powerful, or big uh, implications there. Very big implications. This is why samadhi. One of the reasons why samadhi is a very useful and supremely wholesome state. Unification, because you so sense. Well, actually, all that you know, you can feel really pleasant, steady, not surging, not rough, not harsh, not snatchy, but steady, satisfying, pleasant quality, which is unified around skillful intention and felt not just as an idea in your head that you have to keep thinking about, but it's actually become embodied. So you're breathing it. So that way it's much, uh, you don't have to keep remembering or thinking of something that's inspiring. It's, it's become, it's grafted into your, into your nervous system. So then this becomes a quality called sukha, or pleasure, ease, the opposite of dukkha. So that's another step in the progress of feeling. And some of the practice is just training the mind to, you know, to to, um, hold a form of intention. hold a form of intention, hold that particular firmness of intention. Because the very firmness of intention is exactly where this energy body of the mind becomes apparent. You can feel it as steady, firm, stable. That's why you want to establish intention as as a different part of your life. Then it becomes, you've got this energy of firmness, stability. And that's that's the you might say that's the the center around which all these other developments occur. So at first this is firm and it becomes with uh, piti and sukha, with rapture and ease, it becomes uh, more than just firm, it becomes uh, suffusive. So you actually feel yourself uh, washed or flooded or cleaned or Brightened by that, by that energy. So this is naturally trans- transforms one's tastes and values. Mm-hmm. Because it's quite a um, comfortable and long-lasting quality. It doesn't come through rushing around. It doesn't come through grabbing. It can only come through steady, conscious, applied, letting go. So it's always associated with can only be associated with skillful intentions. So this is very transformative. If you get impatient in your meditation, that doesn't do it. If you get lazy in it, that doesn't do it. So it's, it's a real trainer, teacher, in 
getting the intention and the energy and the pra- of the practice just balanced. When it hits the balance, you, you know it. And it may be only, first of all, it only lasts a little while, a second or two. Then you come back to that. You recognize there was that. You come back to it. How did it become, how did, it, how did the pressure drop? How did the sense of, like a strange sense of softness or warmth or openness, where did that occur? You come back to that. First, it's not very strong. You come back to it. And you start to celebrate, explore it, enjoy it, tease it out, make much of it. The more you go to it, the, the, the clearer, the stronger it gets. You don't suddenly, well, I don't think so, but most people don't suddenly go from an agitated state to a kind of blissful state. It's, it takes skillful work of hours, days, weeks, months, years. Well, it's the, it's, you know, it's kind of remember it's there. It's a possibility. And you have to pick up the sign of it. A sense of, oh, this feels a little bit lighter. Then how do you know what that feels like? What is it that can detect that? In the practice of meditation, we can learn a lot about um, skillful handling, skillful holding. And uh, when you start to meditate, then the mind feels very much like a um, snowstorm. It's just stuff blowing through, stuff blowing through, winds, um, changes. It's got no particular form to it seems almost substanceless. It's just like flickering shadows and images. It's got, you know, indeterminate. You couldn't imagine it having any particular form. It's just, you know, everything all over the place. But when you, as you establish that particular quality of intention and you keep coming back to it, it starts to acquire a subtle form. It's not an obvious form, like a round or square or something like that. But... It, but it has a certain sense of the field, like a center, a sense of gravity, a sense of firmness. Um, it's a subtle form. You know when your mind is scattered. Yeah. It's not, so when it's not scattered, that's, that's a definition in terms of form. It could be broken up into multiplicity, many, many-fold. You know, so an un, a mind with no concentration or no samadhi is like that it has it's just uh, scattering like leaves or stars or you know snow it's all kinds of things but you notice when it starts to have a, a unity to it it requires a particular form which we could call rather than being diverse it's uni- it's unity now that's that's a definition in terms of form See, then you, you hold to the unity of it. The unity may be just the sense of here, present. Mm, here, present. And it has a, and that unity has, an, has a knowing quality. 
Because wit's a, a stable form like that means that the knowing, the direct awareness of the mind becomes much more apparent and clear. It starts to shine, becomes joyful. So it's as if there's the mental energies as they become more stable, acquire a particular subtle form that allows this quality of awareness to shine more clearly. Normally it's, it's just uh, there, but there's so much other stuff happening, moving around, you can't quite receive it, you can't quite discern it. Mm. It's just you know, you know you're aware of something, but you can't really get the feeling for awareness, the real sense of it. When the mind is stabilized, the awareness becomes very bright, clear, open. Then mm. you know about holding to... To, an, to a form, when you're scattered, when it's pushed, when it feels twisted, when you're manipulating or pushing something or forcing something, or when you're dragging back, or when you're really together with what you're doing, really unified with what you're doing. Because it's not as if there's anything that mysterious about it, it's just the fact of mind. The mind is like... It's a resonant energetic experience, so if it if it's thrown if it's put into lots and lots of different things, then its energy becomes scattered. If it's just stabilized around one thing, its energy becomes unified. Nothing mysterious around that. Or even spiritual really. Yeah. So as you get that, you get the sense that that the quality of that form can then hold stable against the pressure of feeling, which generally pushes it, or is generally pushed by feeling. So the, the very form of the stability of the mind has an ability to, to withstand the pressure of pain or discomfort or disagreeable and the enticements of pleasant pleasure. So it just stays still, still, still. And that's that's an important asset because then you begin to really know feeling for what it is. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to anything except itself. It passes. And in the passing of a particular feeling, you get this sense of another thing that can be called a feeling, but it's a feeling of, of relief or freedom. You know, it's, it's openness. That real... That, you know, the, the relief of pressure, the relief from pressure. Now, holding to a form, that's part of that's what mindfulness can help us to do. Just use, this is what we're doing, so you hold to that. And in monastic training, there's a lot of emphasis on trying to bring that, that uh, mindfulness into very specific things, like when you eat the meal, you just eat the meal. You know, it's not a social gathering. You just focus on eating the meal. When you have the food, you put it in the bowl, one bowl, so it's just the meal in the bowl. It's not a side dish and dessert and afters and hors d'oeuvre and main course and peas. It's just the food. <laughs> you know, so you, you try to, to come from the diversities into, into unity. 
into a sim- simplicity because then that your mind will then acquire a simplicity, a unity around it. This is eating food. This is not, shall I have prawns or cherries or whatever, you know. It's just food. So that, that you know, and then even in the eating of it, one of the training rules is you're supposed to just eat one spoonful at a time. Um, that is, all you're doing is putting the spoon in your mouth. You're not making up the next one. So it really slows it down. Just do that as if that one spoonful is all you're going to get. <laughs> you know, it's not part of a series. It's just the one thing. So you just eat. And every chew, every chew you do is just one bite. And that's the way you want to train. Instead of, well, you know, you feel a certain momentum occurs with that. You know? You know? When you're hungry and if somebody puts a plate of food down in front of you, that food starts flying, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you kind of, kind of get it in your mouth, it just moves so fast. <laughs> but then, and so certainly this is quite a challenge when you have, um, you know, like we have a daily fast. So after, after the meal, there's no eating. So by the time the food comes around, there's a certain, you know, the feeling is pressing, you know, the pressure of feeling. So it's quite easy to just get in there and start wolf it all down. But then you, that's the point of having a form where we eat together, you know, there's a certain sense of formality to it. We're sitting in our robes, in the whole form around how we eat acts as something that, that resists that push. And as you resist the push, then the, the whole um, mythology of the feeling starts to unravel. You realize that the feeling isn't in the food, the pleasant, pleasantness isn't in the food, the pleasantness isn't in the mind, it's in a particular blur of activity. So if you really eat mindfully, it can be sometimes pleasant, unpleasant, eventually it's just... Doesn't really, not really a big, doesn't really impinge. And of course, if, uh, you know, that could sound rather dreary, if it wasn't for the fact that the the sense of uh, firmness and freedom itself has an enormously beneficial effect on the mind. Free from the agitation, composure, there's composure, there's assurance, there's mindfulness, there's, uh, and there's no, there's no after effects that we often get with pleasant feeling when we get caught in it, is a tendency to get, lose ourselves in a pleasant feeling and then the feeling passes and oh, you feel slightly rocky. You know, what was all that about? Okay, Right, you know, that was a really interesting show on television. Now what are we going to do? You know, it's a sort of rocky, giddy moment. Then, well, I suppose I'll do something else. And you, know, you get caught in something. Then it, it, the feeling tone, you know, lose, you lose stability. And then when that particular source of feeling passes, you're sort of a bit groggy or a bit spinning. So you've got to get another hit. The point of uh, things like eating mindfully is so you don't get that effect. It's just a process and you get to the end of it and you feel cool. 
and then it's time to clean the bowl, wash up, tidy up. And you can do all that in a sort of level way. Hmm? Holding a form. Now, a lot of monastic life uses form. That's what it is, really. So above, beyond just uh, committing to the precepts is a commitment to its particular form. It means we sort of start to limit what we're going to be doing. We belong to the monastic community. We are held within this. The particular routines of the day are a form. So it's, you know, the morning puja, 4.30 in the morning. And if we just went on the feeling, probably some days we'd be here at 6, some days here at 5, some days here at 10, some days not here at all. <laughs> you know, some days we might be inspired and be here at 3, you know. But if we just relied upon the feeling, it would just be moving around and it'd be, you know, well, that's the way to do it. That's that's true. That's really being in touch with how you're feeling. But yeah, it is. But is is that necessarily the best? <laughs> it's certainly better than just being, um, you know, held by some ideological duty. But this isn't. An ideological duty. This is this is a. So if you hold it as that way, then it's it goes wrong. You get zealotry or um, some kind of doctrination, doctrinaire view about it all. There's nothing particularly great about going to morning puja at four thirty. It's not something you're going to save the world, or you feel as a cause, but it's just something we do for a form, so that. Over time, you feel not good about it, good about it, good to be in the group, fed up with being in the group, and you just keep going. <laughs> and then the feeling tone starts to just give up. You know, it's just, this is what happens. You're there because that's what it is. And uh, that's not just blind obedience. It means you, you've, you've moved through a whole load of um, feelings, triggering feelings and there's a sense of clarity openness space which is an immediate benefit for the meditation which is a long term benefit and you're not really so involved with whether you feel good or not or that you want to do something to make yourself feel good feeling good is good it changes can't always feel good. So it's, you know, in the long run, it's best to shift your allegiances to, not to what's going to get me out of this attachment to feeling. And that's kind. Of, that's really what uh, you know, monastic form or form of life is about. Yeah creates a big space, it's rather like this this hall. You know, it's not full of interesting paintings or portraits of inspiring monks or 
beautiful nature, it's just bare walls, stone floor, unadorned wood holding the roof up. It's empty, most of it's about space. And to me it represents the quality, (coughs) personally, that I attuned to what I like in, in monasteries is the sort of the simplicity and the openness and the undecorated, the f- just it's firm and it holds a space. It's not even that inspiring. <clears throat> it's just, you know, just there and you can get inside it and you can be with it. There's a lot, lot of stuff to get interested in. So it tends towards unifying the mind rather than diversifying it to bits and pieces and details. It's just most of the element, biggest element of this hall is its space. That's the single dominant feature of it. And you can, you can tune, attune to that unifying quality. I mean, you could kind of look at all the different bits and pieces that are here, the difference between the wood and the lamps and the statues and so forth. And you could like this bit or not like that bit. But actually what we can say is the most important thing to recognize is the unifying factor is it's spacious. And then what does your mind do with that? You notice the space quality, the unifying quality, and your mind takes on that unifying, unified experience. So that's, you know, and then we determine that, really. And you're determining that in, in monastic life and determining this sense of open space. It means it could be this feeling, that feeling, these people come, these people go. It's busy, then it's not busy. It's quiet, nothing much is happening, and then it's very busy and too much is happening. You know? And it's cold and it's rainy and it's warm and it's dry. And it's inspiring, it's boring, and you hate it, and you want to run away. And you love it and you want to come back again. It's the only place in the world you want to be and it's the last place in the world you want to be. <laughs> and that's great. <laughs> because eventually it's, it's just not, not anything, it's just empty. <laughs> and it receives you. It says, you know, fine, be here with your Fears and your worries or your joys, your inspiration, that's all fair. That's all there. There's no resistance to that. The space receives you. And you, that's what you establish in using a form like that. Personally, I don't, you know, I, I use it that way. I don't see particularly, I can, you know, respect the particular details of Theravada or Zen or. Thai or Sri Lankan or this, that, and the other. On one level, yeah, that's there. But the main thing I like is just that you've got a, a form you don't have to keep fiddling around with because it has a, then you use form just as something to determine, to create unity, to stabilize the mind, to get composure, and to just use it as a place to relinquish or let go of all the diversifying programs of the mind, the choosing, the options, the ifs, the ands, the alternatives, the comparisons, the speculations, the futures, the past, the just all that. <laughs> you know what it what your mind's doing when it's affected by all that. 
And then when it's not what it's like. And this is really a lived out course. So for the commitment for Anagarika is a year. Uh, you know, if you want, you want to have something like that, so you can go. You start to get a real sense of the movement of feelings and impressions. You live through some things. You really see some things rising up, some pieces of territory rising up in yourself, and you see some of them shift and move. Yeah, and then that that then you it's not even that you've necessarily eliminated them all, but you've actually started to take a a stand or find a ground where you can you know you're not that these are not yours these are just things that come and go they're not what you are you're not going to find yourself as a feeling as an inspiration or as a depression you know sometimes we want to find ourselves as inspired or we keep finding ourselves as depressed we believe in our depressions as something that we fundamentally are. It's just the mind is taken by a feeling and just sticks in it. And this is the, so the quality of the resolution is to, okay, is that we have to meet that, handle that, be with that, acknowledge that. It's not, not about not, it's not about not having feelings, it's about having a place to feel a feeling as a feeling for what it is. Its duty is to feel. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to do. But it does not have to belong. It doesn't have to be the motivating um, center of your life. And the feeling of that is, is relief. Because, you know, however much you try, how, you know, what do you can do if you... If, Pleasant feeling is, is the is the motivating aim of your life. I mean, it's going to be a bit of a struggle, isn't it? <laughs> it's be quite busy to get the pleasant feeling element constantly there, unwavering. And always there's still the anxiety that it will pass away and get sick or fall apart or you know have a bad day or go broke, and then all that feeling that we've had suddenly falls apart. You've been happy for 90 years of, time, of happiness and the next day you get a toothache and it's all gone. You can't remember ever been happy in your life. <laughs> Where did all the happiness go? You had 90 years of it and just flash, you can just go like that. <laughs> can't it, you know? Can anybody store it up? So I'll have a lot of happiness today so that when things get bad I can kind of draw upon it in my bank account of happiness and bring it forward. It doesn't work that way, does it? If you're happy and you suddenly get toothache, you know, or the happiness you had for the last decade doesn't save you from the toothache. Sometimes it makes it worse because you had a, you know, if you hadn't been happy you wouldn't really mind. <laughs> it's just another thing. Yeah. So there's always that, that the fragility of it all. It's poignant, isn't it? Very poignant. 
you know, the bereavement experience. When we've had a happy relationship, then there's a loss. It's terribly poignant. You know, none of us, you know, we are, can be so shattered by that. But then, you know, in the, certainly in relationships, what counts more than just the feeling is the determination, the intention of commitment. You know, then that, then you, something that can, can stand up through the good and the bad. This is very much like what monastic life is about. It's like a, it's not a romance, it's a marriage. <laughs> Two very different things. <laughs> But uh, so you can have a divorce <laughs> fairly painlessly. <laughs> no hard feelings. <laughs> so if you do it for a year, you know, then wonderful. It's great. You know? You're courageous, and, uh, and hopefully one will have really established something of long-term benefit. So tonight is our we're having a, a vigil for a, till midnight, which is actually only a couple of hours or so. So we'll be sitting, walking meditation, uh, resisting all kinds of seductive feelings, no doubt, <laughs> and bearing with uncomfortable feelings, so that we can get that sense of uh, freedom. And uh, of course, the more that people want to uh, cooperate and join in with it, the stronger the whole experience gets for all of us. So very much encouraged to make a resolution to to uh, support a vigil. That's why we have them. Hmm. Anyone? <laughs> hmm.